0: have this uh, opportunity to say a few words this morning, uh, which is great uh, pleasure for me, in one way, and of course uh, acutely awkward in another way. (laughs) Because uh, I think that for many people on retreats, one of the great problems is that one gets locked into one's own personal noise, inner noise, outer noise, historical circumstances, traumas, fears, hopes, virtues, and so on. And one fails to appreciate the, the true spiritual quality of what one is doing. And we spend so much time trying to iron out and sort out and straighten out all of the crinkles and wrinkles in our personal circumstances that come up, that we constantly look the wrong way. We're looking for awakening or liberation or the, the object of our goal, but we're, we're looking hard, we're looking intensely, but so often we're looking in the wrong direction, in the wrong place. And we fail to appreciate what we already are, what we already uh, have, what can't be grasped and, and needn't be held, the very essence of our being. So my experience coming here... Uh, being here, not knowing anybody here, sitting in silence with uh, people here, is to is to feel a great sense of, of uplift, and support, and gladness. Because what is most tangible when you don't talk to anybody, and when you don't know anybody, and you don't have any personal uh, relationships going, is you begin to, to see past all that stuff in other people and in yourself, you begin to appreciate the quality of it, just the human endeavour, the human aspiration. What it takes, when you come to think of it, to give up so much, including one's right to speak, one's ability to control circumstances, to come to a strange country, to live under some uh, discipline, and in rather exacting circumstances. And to do this willingly, and uh, patiently, And the result, if one actually attunes to that, to that human aspiration, is a a great sense of gladness, joyfulness, and contentment. To learn to appreciate what we really are, rather than to be lost in all of the the rambling circumstances that flitter through our minds. This, I suggest, is um, what we are here to do, to awaken to. And when we begin to hear it and think it, we, we want to know, how do I do that? How do I learn to deepen the appreciation of my life? To, to deepen the quality of it? either for my own welfare, or for the welfare of others, how do I learn to, what do I have to do in order to become that fully sensitized being? And uh, for the many paths to try to do this, uh, insight meditation is what we are calling this. But in today's talk, I'd like to give examples, some examples of what of, of life situations, of how to use, um, life situations to also bring that around. Because what, uh, we hear from teachers is that of course you do this meditation technique, but that's not it, is it? It doesn't do it, you don't get it. And yet, you think, well, why are we doing it? And like you, so I began Practicing meditation about um, 16 years ago. And uh, of course, with meditation, you do get some kind of immediate payoff. You get a feeling of some calm and, and a, a slight warmth, uh, warm heartedness, a slight sense of, of connectedness, just the, a refined pleasure that you get, say, with watching the breath or with calming down or with living in a composed way. You do get this kind of payoff. in the form. I see. So the first you get this, and you think, right? Well, if you keep going, it will get better, won't it? This is this is the the way the mind works. You know, you've got the aperitif, something to wet the appetite, some calm, sense of composure and balance. Right. Well, if you do it more, harder, stronger, then it must get better. And this is the attitude that uh, corrupts uh, our life, because when we begin. We have that beginner's mind, where actually what we're doing, most profoundly, is we're not doing. We're opening to it, we're not, we don't know how to do it, and something in us has to stop, and listen, and wake up. When we first begin to meditate, we are in a don't know, no control position. And from that position, we begin to experience some sense of joy, and then immediately the control, knowing mind comes back and says, "Oh." I see how you do it. Now, let's do it some more." And the lie that the mind tells us is that I have done it. That it was mine, that I did it in the first place. Through my special skills and in earnest endeavour, I did it, I got these results, now I'm going to do some more, and get the final big apple. (laughs) You probably by now, three or four days in, uh, it seems to be quite a common experience for all of us, is that this particular quality of mind, the I'm going to do it, this time, this is it, over the top, you know, the big push, lasts for a certain period of days, and then unless you're extremely strong-willed and stubborn, by about three or four days you begin to realise, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> The pit starts to open, I'm not going to, I can't control it, I'm not going (laughs) to handle it, help! And then you think, another seven days, we could go of this. And uh, if you watch closely, and you actually allow yourself to go to trust the retreat, and the situation of the retreat, and to be along with it, you go through this
1: seemingly
0: necessary trough of despair, until the mind has stopped trying to hold it, make it, do it, and has given up and then we go back to the well I'm alright for this moment and suddenly when one stops the or when that that feverish attitude that we will do and have and become ceases this is alright there's pain in the body, but yeah and it's not wonderful, but yeah. They don't beat you here and <laughs> And there can be a profound awakening to an all rightness behind all of these circumstances of our mind. I mean and we begin to see that the real problem is the mind that is controlling is controlling having made and continuing to make certain judgments. It's like if you're driving a car, if you're on the bridge of a ship, you have to keep saying left hand down, right hand down, this way, that way, slow, fast, and so on. And this is the way we seem to be. We seem to live up here in our heads, saying, right leg, move, do this today, do this tomorrow, this will give you that result. We have the skipper up on top, and we don't realise that he's twirling the wheel, but it's not actually connected to the engine. Life is going on, the mosquitoes come and go, the sun rises and sets, the temperatures come and go, we get cold, we feel sick, we feel happy, we feel sad, we feel tired, and none of it has been the responsibility of this hijacker up top saying, I'm doing it, it's all mine, we'll soon get there, trust me, here I go again. And not, did you see what I did then? <laughs> And so, in some way, we have to have a situation that we can trust in enough to be able to realize the truth that, that actually our whole life, and not just this retreat, is a no-control situation. There never has been a final control. There never will be a final control. We are born. I didn't, I didn't birth me. We breathe. I do not breathe me. This organic life, ...continues doing its awkward and embarrassing things on occasions which I have to take extreme care to do in private <laughs> and one day it will die me and if we don't wake up to that, then our death moment, as our life moment, is going to be in a state of extreme panic and crisis about how can I do it? How shall I do it? How will I make it? What's it mean to me? Now, this path is, it's very simple, but it's not easy because our habits are so ingrained. So, what uh, one finds is that you generally have to keep having that faith and trust to put yourself into situations that you can trust, and are there to provide you with enough attentiveness to witness the truth of what's happening to witness the distinct difference between the mind, the thinking, judging mind that's controlling and saying this is right, this is wrong, this should be, this shouldn't be, and the actuality. And then it begins to be in a situation where we can attend to the actuality. Gradually, our sense of lineage changes, our sense of relationship changes from being associated with the thinking, judging mind to being associated with truth. And then, uh, the more that we practice, we begin to learn to listen with some lightness and humour to this hijacker mind, this uh, captain on the bridge, and to learn to live in peace with it. Because it, there are, of course, in relative senses, there are there are relatively controlled situations. There are skills that we can adopt. There are things that we can do but for ultimate truth and for awakening, we can't do it. It has to happen through us. Now, um, I have come here on on part of my of a walking pilgrimage that I've undertaken with my friend Nick Nick Scott, and we have walked from Lumbini in Nepal to this place, encountering many. Adventures, experiences internally and externally along the way, which I won't go into because it would take up uh, almost all of the day <laughs> to do so. But I would like to bring up for reflection that uh, metaphor, if you like, and in our case uh, quite a reality of the pilgrimage as being what we are all undertaking. The, the example of the relationship between an ultimate no-control situation and relative degrees of judgment and control and decision-making going on. This particular pilgrimage has been very uh, helpful for me because it was completely out of my control. I didn't decide to do it. Nick was the progenitor of this thing and very wisely having set it up he then immediately Uh, to the best of his ability, handed over control. He went to my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, and said, I would like to go on a pilgrimage to India. I think it would do me good, (laughs) Bhante. I need this kind of experience, and uh, I feel I would like to to, uh, pay my respects, express gratitude to the country where I learnt to meditate in. And what I would like to do because uh, he's also someone who who uh, has been meditating for many years is I don't think he put it this way but he said I'd like to take a monk along <laughs> I'd like to often take a monk along because uh, Nick being a very good friend faithful supporter has developed a relationship with monks whereby he can use them <laughs> something to hand over control to <laughs> and of course this is Strange enough, this is a rare thing. Because when you hand over control to a monk, you know for a start that a monk, well, he knows uh, that most of our monks are basically gentle beings. Uh, They they have a good degree of ethical responsibility. They often haven't got a clue what's going on, so (laughs) you can generally find ways to manipulate them into doing things you want them to do. (laughs) But essentially, they, they do provide some... Way in which you feel there's something there that you are following behind, and you are you are you've got something that can keep you in this no control situation of looking at your desires and your wishes and your rationalising and your judging mind about we don't need this and I want that and all of this stuff. So he did this, and then um, Edgardo said uh, one morning to me, "Venerable uh, situation? <laughs> Scott has offered to take a monk on pilgrimage in India. So I'm like, oh, that's nice, I wonder who it would take. <laughs> so he said, um, you, you might like to go. Uh, um. <laughs> and of course, the mind goes into this, Wow, wow, what, 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 it India, <laughs> mystical experiences. Like said, I have enough street wisdom to know just that. that whenever your mind moves in that way, <laughs> The mystical experiences are mostly going to be things like dysentery and... (laughs) ...hanging around, waiting nine hours for a train, and, you know, all that kind of mess-up. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we arrived and we've been going along ever since. And uh, for both of us, it's been in our own ways, uh, because of being in India and being out on the road and living in a very um, insecure way... Uh, very helpful, because we've had to, we have a certain amount of control in that we have our discipline, we have made certain vows as to what standard of ethical conduct we will keep, we have a certain, we felt a certain responsibility to fulfil particular duties. Uh, As pilgrims, we felt that we would like to go to the Buddhist holy places, and on on behalf of all the people who have helped us to make offerings to, express our gratitude, to, to meditate, to do it for the welfare of other people, this kind of, of um, form, if you like, and that we would walk, we would uh, go on foot, and that we would also, uh, being pilgrims and being those who wish to awaken, try to just open to the situations that arise around us and be with those, not to be someone who can just uh, snap their fingers and escape situations and uh, walking in India as many of you just did even um, you know wherever you travel in India you find you are very quickly overwhelmed by by the the teeming uh, existential whatever it is of India <laughs> <laughs> and walking you are actually completely submerged in it you know you have no refuge you have no room you you every time you sit down you are surrounded by people we have been um, living on alms food which means that uh, to an ex- the extent which is possible without actual loss of life we have been trying to uh, live on what food may be given to us through people who are acting in generosity so that what we do is we uh, customarily, and this is a basic standard for a Buddhist monk, is we, we make, we go to a place, such as a village, and then we make ourselves available. We sit, and we wait. Or we maybe we chant, or we just sit. And we see, we wait, and we... pray. <laughs> 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 that, uh, some benevolent being will come along and say, Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> this being India, of course, people do that, quite, quite, quite quickly. <laughs> What are you doing? But we've also, and this is part of my training, is that as a as a, a Buddhist monk, one can't demand anything. This is part of the, the game of it. This is part of the, the no-control game of it. You can't say, oh, I'm really glad you came along, you know, I'm starving. <laughs> uh, you know, what about a bit of food? You say, oh, I, I'm from England, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'm going there, yes, and uh, and you wait until they say something like, uh, have you eaten, or would you like to eat? And then of course you can say, uh, well we haven't eaten today, Uh, that would be very nice. But of course we can't eat afternoon. so if it's got to ten to twelve by the time they've asked this question, you can imagine it's a certain amount of tension... (laughs) for real. This is not like meditation game, this is not waiting for the bell to ring. This is like, if I don't get this, <laughs> I'm going to be hungry and so on. And very, very rarely, we have actually, we have gone without, and uh, this has been remarkably rare actually. But in fact, one has appreciated that also, because going without keeps you awake to not taking it for granted, to not feeling in some way that you can swing it, but if you just sit there looking cute, somebody will come along. Because eventually your mind starts to learn, you know, if you just sort of sit there looking pious, maybe, (laughs) it worked yesterday, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And you realise that that has to go to it, it has to be open, otherwise, what's the point of living? To eat? Are we just sitting here to put food in these bodies, and on and on until we die? Or isn't there something that actually, even the mechanics of, of eating, and experiencing life, as this ordinary, organic experience can bring us to out of demand, out of control, out of the feeling that we own and have to have, and into a state of openness. And for that one is prepared to put up with a bit of hunger, put up with a bit of pain, put up with a bit of discomfort, and this, of course, is what you're doing. So, I'm just uh, reminding. There is no reason at all why you should not suffer. There is no reason at all why you, your, your experience should be completely blissful. There is nothing wrong with it being painful, with it being awkward. The awkwardness and the pain of it is something that as you contemplate it more thoroughly you will begin to actually even appreciate that this is a sign of your extreme sincerity and your extreme quality of aspiration and goodness that you should be pleased with and proud of. There is a kind of honour, even a dignity, in suffering when you willingly, or semi-willingly, put yourself into a situation and you say, I will not move past this. Even at what cost I have to pay, this will be my offering. This will be my way of offering myself, my body, my mind, my... uh, Conditioning to the truth. And when we can do that, we begin to give up the feeling that life should offer us anything at all. And then when we have done that, we begin to appreciate what has been offered to us. We have these marvellous awareness minds. From the moment we've been born until now, we've been aware, constantly aware, We've been aware of confusion, and pain, and happiness, and joy, and love We've been aware What is that? It doesn't add up It doesn't make sense as just being some psychological or physiological process It's not a personal condition, is it? I mean, you're not the same person as you were when you were three months old It's not about being born in a particular country It's not about being male or female it's not about acquiring any talents or virtues it is your basic birthright that which you came here, you were born, in order to realise what you already are and yet, the journey to that is an arduous pilgrimage so, in, in, in our pilgrimage, we have of course experienced many things Finally, the experiences quaint, bizarre, tragic and humorous are, by the way, the main thing is that uh, we have learnt not to have experience, but to allow experience to pass through us, and to humbly accept experience as it comes, and to not expect or demand, to live life openly and with no future. In a few hours, we will walk off somewhere. Um, we generally work it out, Nick has the maps, and, the, and the, some sort of sense of vague it's out there, that way, Bunty. And uh, I generally don't know, I've got a few names, and then we just start walking. And of course, as you very well know, the map and the name do not relate to what is actually going to happen in a day. So we walk off into that with a sense of clarity, and consciousness, and right effort to use the directing and controlling system of the mind to put ourselves into a situation of no control. Where we have to let go because we can't handle the language, we haven't got resources, we haven't got friends, we don't have a shelter, we don't have food, we we don't know how to cope. We don't know if we can put up with it. We might get sick, we might get cold, we might get beaten, all these kind of things. And, uh, but in the immediacy of that openness, it's all worthwhile. The old story that you may know, and as I don't mind repeating, because actually I'm not here to say anything new I'm just here to touch upon points that I hope resonate for you with what you already know or are uh, awakened to is of the, the man who is uh, being it chased by a tiger comes to the edge of a cliff, there's a tiger behind him cliff in front of him, he, no choice he jumps over the cliff and he sees uh, roots he hangs onto these roots Uh, the tiger up above and he looks down there's a roaring torrent down there he's hanging onto the roots and he sees two mice come out of their hole and start nibbling (laughs) through the roots that he's holding onto over the other side he sees this rather exquisite uh, bush with his beautiful fruit on it and as the mice are nibbling through this uh, root he reaches his hand out plucks one of these fruits and tastes it. most exquisite savour. And this is what uh, this kind of metaphor is for what the beauty of life in the moment actually is about. In fact, we are all hanging on to roots that are being nibbled through our <laughs> we May We may last a day, hopefully. But the one thing we can be certain of is that this is a dying system. This runs down. It does not go up. It goes down. We are all hanging on to roots and there is no way out except death. But because of that, if we fully accept that, we begin to let go of the future and the trying to get out of it, and we begin to instead accept and open and appreciate the immediacy of the moment. Just looking at it as because uh, death always seems to us a long way off, doesn't it? Look at the context of the retreat. We are committed, we could, you know, you could chicken out and run away, but somehow, you know, unless it really gets really bad, the whole sense of, of personal integrity can't handle that one, we can't go forward, we're not making progress, we can't escape, we can't get out, and then we can't just kind of crash out because there's a hundred people around and, you know, we can't go forward, we can't go back, we can't stand still, we can't get anything, we can't yeah, seem to get rid of things. What do we do? We begin instead to accept this presence of this unsatisfactory quality of life and begin to turn our view around who is it who is experiencing this and this is where the, uh, the true fruit of Dhamma is in our pilgrimage we have also practiced a strong degree of devotion. Uh, something that meant very little to me when I began to practice meditation. In fact, it was because of my complete absence of it that I was more or less forced into, into the more rational uh, insight meditation method. I didn't have any kind of faith. I couldn't worship anything. I didn't have any sense of God or anything like that to pick me up. So I was much more interested in direct seeing for myself. And yet, uh, over time, one has begun to realize that uh, the whole way of seeing can be enhanced by opening the receptivity of the mind in devotion. It's not just a matter of concentrating and looking hard at something, it's how you look. And when you're looking at is still in some way looking for, looking for the answer looking for the end, looking for the way out, looking for the way to deal with something, which is just another way of talking about suppression, isn't it how can I deal with doubt it means, how can I cut it out how can I squash it how can I, you know we talk about some sort of us working with our problems it means, I want to work with them, i.e. get rid of them and all of these euphemisms that one uses as part of the wriggling to basically deny the unsatisfactoriness of sensory life. What about if we actually try devoting ourselves to it? Treating body, treating even the nattering of the mind, and life here, the form of the retreat, the teachers, the manager, the whole situation is something that we that we honour. We honour it not because it gratifies us, not because by by doing that it will will help us out, it will kind of if we say nice things to our body it will be nice back, but because in the very act of giving ourselves, of honouring, of having that devotional sense, the demanding of the mind stops, the grasping stops, and that the sense of conflict stops. And we begin to experience uh, a proper relationship with this sensory predicament of birth and death, comings and goings, and uh, situations that we can't control. And this is what we've been doing in our pilgrimage constantly, if you like, use the metaphor bowing to India not believing in it not say saying it's right but allowing it to enter into us keeping ourselves open to it, allowing its oddness and its awkwardness and its uncomfortableness to enter into us and to, to enter into a proper relationship of no conflict to go back to and I'll just Finish with this uh, one uh, small story here that may relate uh, more exactly to a common experience that you will have: one of physical pain. Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I so sit. I think right. Just be with the pain. That will do it. You know, being pain. Dealing with the pain. <laughs> Not working, you know. Or <laughs> well, maybe, you know, there'd be a sense why we probably need to do some yoga. Some. <laughs> That's got it. That's it now. Oh no. Cushion. One cushion, two cushions, three cushions. <laughs> maybe some sort of slight angling, like slightly towards the right buttock, left <laughs> buttock. Uh-uh. <laughs> okay, Fuck, you've got to help me, chiropractor. <laughs> <laughs> Must be the posture, perhaps I'd sit with a book on my head, perhaps I'm leaning back, leaning forward. <laughs> Nothing. Five years, that is. Uh, <laughs> <pain>. <laughs> I have an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain is hurt and I don't like it very obvious truth, yet yet I hadn't actually come to that. I hadn't actually accepted what one glosses over in a a few words I don't like pain. Instead I acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well you should like pain, pain is good for you. (laughs) Uh, You know, pain is bad, make it go away, but I hadn't really looked into I do not like and then one day uh, I was sitting in meditation hall. this is it the showdown I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing paid, paid, wriggle. why did you say that why five hours you know? <laughs> after all middle way and then, uh, you know, the hours are going by. Three... Three hours, one minute. Hours. <laughs> and after about four or so hours of this pain, I just got... My mind had been through all the various, you know, circuits of, be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it. Kill it. <laughs> and it uh, came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally, the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually, you know, ignorance does get tired after a while. I had to take a break from being ignorant. And so I began, instead of ignoring it and repressing it, I to actually open to it without the, let's open to it and make it go away. Well, let's open to it and they'll make me go into some kind of cosmic space which is, oh, right. And then I began to see this sensation throbbing away. And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light Robbing experience, tearing, tearing experience. And then, because of the, the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice well, there's that, and then there's this terrible kind of no, 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 no feeling going on resistance and this. And then, with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body, bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it, it shouldn't happen to me, why is it happening to me, what did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful and pain go away and this kind of moaning, wheed- wheedling mind and as, I, and as I contemplated just my relationship to this sensation it became clear that there was nothing to do, I could do with the sensation but I could stop beating it with my mind and I began to have this experience of deep regret for all of the beatings and the kickings that, that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way. And I felt that this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved. They'd just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this, this vision arose in my mind of this, this dog, kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me, how long are you going to keep beating me for? And I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. And in my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and say, "Please forgive me." And then this, in this, this all happened in a, in a very few moments. This creature. Turned into a cartoon dog, and we were dancing. We, had pain. we were dancing, you we know, the pain. And then the whole thing just kind of exploded very gently. And then the, the pain seemed to disappear. It seemed to have said, thank you, finally, I've been knocking on the door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing the problem was I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And that once you open to the lesson has been learned, business is finished. Now as soon as I say that, I realise people are going to think, that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll have to five years of thinking, it doesn't work, I don't <laughs> see why. Because the truth is, in fact, there is no real learning on this intellectual level, is there? There is only a kind of learning that, that we have to have that humility to recognize that really the learning point is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control and the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says keep going past the area of, no, of where you, you can't control it anymore and trust. And for me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. That is not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honour truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. So, uh, hope for you, this uh, retreat will... If nothing else, bring you to recognize the where control ends and what lies beyond that for you. Because this, what lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of deathlessness, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious, the vastness of life. So I'll just say those words for you today and, uh, If you have any questions or you'd like to um, put anything back to me I'll be very pleased to respond